Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. How can you make work work for you? Christina Wallace is an entrepreneur, a professor at Harvard Business School, and an expert in building a career that's true to your values and interests, and compatible with our age of constant disruption. It's the subject of her new book, The Portfolio Life, and we hosted a live stream conversation with her on it back in the spring. Her interview was the entrepreneur DJ Dodonna. How did you come to write the book? Was there a particular moment or a struggle that broke the camel's back or how did that start? It kind of evolved actually. Over the last 10 years, I've been writing about many of these ideas. I was a columnist for Forbes for like four years. I had a podcast for several years, touching on many of the pieces of what came to be the book and just kind of putting it out there in some ways uh, to make sense of my own life. And in some ways to see what sticks, what was standing out among all the other things that people could be reading. And I kept getting comments back from from readers asking for more or asking for templates or wanting to know if I would coach them. And I realized right around the pandemics kicking off um, that that there might be a book there that I could pull all these pieces together in a formal way. And, you know, Quite frankly, it also helped make sense of my life. Like my mother understands what I'm doing now. So there was some benefit there. But but I realized even that was worth something, right? That for many of my readers, having something they can give to a partner, a parent, a boss to say, this is why I have so many things that I love doing and I'm not going to focus. This is why this matters. So uh, it's part permission and part process. And uh that's what made this happen. You're talking to someone who's trying to write a book about sabbaticals. So having my parents understand what I'm doing would also be helpful. So I'll check that off the list. In Think the of future. it that way. <laughs> <laughs> like, was there ever a world where there wasn't a portfolio life? Like ha- has our career and, and lives evolved to the point where this is needed in a different way or were folks just kind of ignoring it in the past? That's an interesting question. You know, I I start the first chapter of the book is a bit of an overview of how we got to this moment, in part because I think there's this model that a lot of people think of as the career path that is a pretty new model, all in all, right? Like, up until the Industrial Revolution, people always had multiple things that they had to do. They had to tend their crops and they had to thatch their roofs and they had to mend their clothes and, and they had to do all these things while also you know, supporting their family. And so there was never this notion of like pick one thing and do it for 40 years really until the Industrial Revolution, the assembly line and sort of the, the post-war boom, certainly here in America, where it became the expectation that you would pick a thing, you would, you know, choose it in college, and then you would follow that path 
for your entire career. And your entire career would only be maybe 35 or 40 years mm. because there were things called pensions that would help you retire at a reasonable age. And that was true for our, you know my grandparents' generation, a little bit still true for my parents' generations, but it's just not true anymore in the way that the, uh, the world is changing, technology is shifting so fast, careers that don't exist suddenly do, and vice versa. Um, and so that path doesn't exist. And, and so I think there's a little bit of that, like needing to remember this is how we used to live. And I think in conjunction to that, we have had this, I call it the cult of ambition that has really taken over for the white collar jobs. I am very ambitious. I'm not, you know, anti-ambition, but the cult of ambition is this mindset that like every time you achieve something, okay, what's next? What's next? Like you have to always be moving forward in this ambition. There's no space for, well, my life priorities might be shifting or I'm going to be ambitious in different ways right now. Maybe I'm ambitious for my family or my relationship or my community and less so for my career in this chapter of life. Um, and so it's a, it's a little bit of both of those forces. There's this reckoning certainly coming out of the pandemic that um, the balance or lack thereof that the white collar uh, professionals have been pursuing for the last few decades, it's just not worth it. And the model of how we used to invest in, be loyal to a career path doesn't work. And I think those two things together uh, is what collided into this notion of like, let's, let's reconnect with this idea. I don't think it's all that novel. I think it's just being put back in visibility in a way that it hasn't been for a few generations. Right. Yeah. This kind of one-sided relationship where we're supposed to be super loyal to our employers, but it's really not, not coming back. I think it's, yeah. that's been an interesting backlash during the great resignation or whatever you want to call it in the past few years. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So just, just kind of stepping back a little bit, like how do you define portfolio life? I define it. I say there are four pillars, but they really kind of boil down to these three concepts. Number one, you are more than your job, right? You are, you are greater than just how you monetize your labor today. Number two, diversification is what's going to help you navigate change and mitigate the uncertainty that is a, a part of our new normal. And number three, when your life changes, when your needs and priorities change, you can and should rebalance how you have, you know, allocated your time and your talents. You should rebalance that portfolio for the season of life you're in. That's all together how I would define a portfolio life. And then how does that differ from this concept of portfolio career? I feel like I've been hearing that as well. So it sounds like it's all part of the same soup. Yeah, I started actually under the guise of a portfolio career. That's where many of these ideas started from because I would absolutely define my career as a portfolio career. I I have multiple irons in the fire. I have multiple sources of income and I see it as much more of an opportunistic kind of zigzag of a strategy, uh, an emergent strategy as Clay Christensen used to say, rather than this sort of linear deliberate strategy. But I expanded the notion from a career to a life because I think it's important to recognize this is this is why work-life balance doesn't exist. Like I hate that term. It's not a thing. Um, because your work is part of your life. It's in the context of your life. They're not like two opposing ends of a teeter-totter where 
you give an hour to one only happens when you take an hour from another. No, your work is part of your life. And so as you allocate your time, as you're thinking about what am I going to do in this season of my life, the career piece has to be in conversation with everything else, your family, your community, your your faith, your self-care, your health, all of the other things that are demanding your time and attention have to be part of the conversation and part of the equation. It's not in a vacuum. And so I, I really think it's important to emphasize the life piece of this and not just the career. Just out of curiosity, there's there's a lot of Venn diagrams, there's charts, <laughs> What, what percentage do you think that career takes in, in your portfolio of life? Or does, should that change over time? What's, what's common for folks? I mean, it's, it hugely changes over time. It really, really does depend on the season of life you're in. And so in the last third of the book, I really get into like the nitty gritty of how to make this work. And I have an entire chapter on time management. And it starts with, you know, I'm sure you've heard this phrase many times, like, well, even Beyonce has 24 hours in her day, right? Like we should be holding ourselves to the standard of Beyonce. And that's bullshit. <laughs> like Beyonce does not have 24 hours in her day. She has a team of people that gives her, <laughs> you know, amplification on her time. Um, she has so much support and for good reason, she's Beyonce. So, so part of this is recognizing like we start from a different capacity depending on the circumstances of our lives. I have two small children right now, a one-year-old and a three-year-old. The starting point for my capacity, how much time I even have to think about giving away in a day is like half of what it was when I was single and child-free in my like late twenties. I could do so many things. I could work from 6 a.m. till midnight if I wanted to across all my different projects. And now at best, I get like nine to five. And then again, from seven to nine, like at best, <laughs> that's, that's a good day. So, um, so I just have much more limited capacity to start the conversation with, uh, as I think about where time fits in my portfolio. So out of all of my time right now, work is probably like 40%. And there was absolutely a season of my life where work and its various, you know, forms for me was like 80%. Um, so it really does uh, uh, start from what season of life are you in? What do you need for this season? And then how much capacity do you have to allocate across your portfolio? And do you help folks kind of predict this? Like, is there a, like a longitudinal kind of like, hey, here's how we think it would you know, take up time in 20 years or this phase in life? Or how should folks think about those? Yeah, it's hard to predict because it really depends on how you've built your life. You know, I have um, I have kids I grew up with who had children at 22 and now at 39 are getting some freedom again, right? Those kids are like about to leave the house and they have so much more space. Um, and, you know, they didn't really spend as much time in their career while their kids were young. And so now they're trying to think of, well, what does that look like for me? I am now 39 and I have young children. And, and so my rebalancing for the next, call it 10 or so years is going to be very different. For my friends who choose not to have kids, maybe some who choose not to have life partners, they, they think about how they've constructed their life very differently. It's going to vary. So it's hard to have 
expectations there or predictions of what each chapter looks like. But what I say is, um, you know, there's, there's a couple of different ways to kind of check in with, is my current portfolio working for me or do mm -hmm. I need to think about rebalancing? And one of them is the question that Clay Christensen asked when he was our professor and he wrote his book on this, which is, you know, how will you measure your life? And you know, as I as I check in every year on like, what are the measurements? What are the things that I want to measure my life against? There's one question at the very bottom of this exercise that I do every year that says, are you happy? Because if I'm hitting every single metric, every measurement that I've hit for my personal, my professional, my health, my financial goals or whatever that looks like, but I'm not happy then I'm, you know, it's like teaching to the test that's like measuring the wrong things. And it's like, okay, so if I'm not happy, it's time to really rethink about my balance and about that allocation. Obviously, big moments of transition are a key time to, to check in and think about, well, what am I going to need for a different phase? Whether that's starting a family, becoming an empty nester, thinking about what that last kind of retirement or post full-time career chapter of your life looks like. Those are the really obvious ones, but I think there's lots of other times as well. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you said you started thinking about this a decade ago, right? And so what are the inflection points during that time? So it's kind of like mid twenties to mid thirties and, and how can folks pick their nose off the grindstone to actually be intentional about this? Yeah. So a couple of the first things I noticed in my kind of mid twenties, early thirties, number one was I went to business school with you and I looked around and I saw what my peers were planning for their lives. Uh, and I thought, well, I don't want that <laughs> for the most part that just, it didn't, it didn't resonate their priorities, how they were thinking about you know, lives in, in investment banking and private equity and consulting like that, none of that resonated for me. And so then the question was, okay, well, if that's not what you want, what do you want? So there was some of that um, kind of friction in my mid twenties that made me really sit down and be proactive about, okay, what, what do you want? What would make you happy for your life? And one of the things that came out of that conversation with myself was you got to keep doing a little bit of a lot of things. Like that's what makes me happy is having mm. kind of different projects in play in conversation with each other. That's where I get new ideas and sort of picking one thing and going all in. That was never going to work for me. That's why I didn't get a PhD in math. And so that was kind of the first maybe uh, inflection point. The second one, of course, was turning 30, which everyone in the moment thinks is this big thing. And then you wake up the morning you're 30 and you're like, oh, nothing is different. <laughs> <laughs> and like nothing feels different until the day sort of mid 30s, the first time your back hurts. And then you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm turning 40 next week. So I'll, I'll report about how that Let me goes. know how that goes. Yeah, my, mine is coming later this year. So, you know, the like 30 year old crisis where I had to figure out who I was. And in particular, that one for me was around partners, life partners. Mm -hmm. I'd been dating on and off through my 20s. I had a couple of serious relationships that didn't really go anywhere. And as I was approaching 30, I was like, look, do you want a family or not? At the time, I was like a super workaholic <laughs> and I had no space for a relationship even if I found someone that I connected with. Um, and when I was dating, I was dating all the wrong people. We had great resumes. We photographed well together. We were not actually good compatible partners. And so that was sort of the second moment where I, I had to really reflect on, okay, you say you want this, 
but you're doing behaviors that are not leading you toward this. So Mm. either you don't want it or you need to rethink your behaviors in order to redirect. And both of those moments, by the way, and I think this is really interesting and ties to your work in sabbaticals. I'm sure you reflect on this as well. Both of those moments occurred when I took space away from my day-to-day life and Mm. traveled by myself. So the first one really kind of looking at my HBS colleagues and saying, I don't want that. I went backpacking for three weeks in Peru right after graduation and was trying to figure out sort of what that thing looked like. One second, my toddler needs to go potty. So DJ, I want you to start talking about your sabbatical because it's going to be relevant to the story I'm telling in one second. Awesome. Can do. Yeah. I I recall actually Christina taking that break after school um, because she was sending out a newsletter called Indiana Jane. And I remember thinking that was quite cool uh, having someone kind of venture off on their own. So I, I did a similar thing seven years after starting my career. So I graduated from Harvard Business School with Christina, started what I thought was my, my dream career. So I had a company that was essentially a FICO score in emerging markets. So how do you help people get access to credit in places where there aren't credit bureaus, which turns out to be most of the world. And um, you know everything was going totally according to plan. We had an amazing company culture you know, written up in two Harvard Business School cases, New York Times, all those things. And what I found was after seven years, just completely burnt out. And I think my story of burnout was always around, you know, like you work in banking or consulting or something where the hours are super tough and you didn't want to be there anyway. And so it makes sense to burn out, but to burn out in an environment where you're doing your dream job was very kind of disconcerting and uh, and difficult for me. And so I took time off. Christina, I talked about your your Indiana Jane newsletter. (laughs) And the result of that time off was uh, just nothing short of kind of a transformation of how I thought about work and life. I think probably like a portfolio rebalancing is how you'd think about it, about wanting to open that aperture back up to say what it is that I would do. And also I think as an entrepreneur, coming to terms with the fact that like some people really love the the starting phase. um, And then once you get to the the kind of repetitive, you know, like replication uh, phase. It's not as not as attractive. So, took time off and you know had that sabbatical experience and set out to create research around like why that's important in people's lives and and what role it can play in you know the future of work. So obviously, it it marries with your work pretty well. It's it's in one of the chapters of your work. So um, happy to continue on that, or, or we can we can bump back. No, I mean I think it's fascinating because so many people are posting about discovering my book on LinkedIn. And so many of them are reflecting on that they are in this moment of sabbatical for themselves or about to start one. And I I can't help but see that connection because to your question of like, how do you pull your nose out of the grindstone and actually have the space to think, you know, in every case for me, I had to literally physically leave my day-to-day life, go somewhere else. And in my case, I needed to go alone. You know, if you mm. go with a friend, you go with a partner, it's really easy to sort of stay in that daily, you know, patter. And for me, I needed the silence and some of the discomfort <laughs> of the silence yeah. to, to actually excavate a little bit of like, okay, well, why is there this disconnect between what I want and what I'm doing? 
Um, the second one, uh, around my thirties, when I was trying to figure out my relationships, I literally went on a relationship offsite. I went camping in Maine for a week and I like diagrammed in my journal, you know, all of, all the relationships and the triggers and the moments that I knew it wasn't working and how long I stayed anyway, and how dedicated I was to fixing them. And, and really had that, that opportunity to kind of step back and say like, well, what is it that I'm looking for in that life partner? And so whether it's your relationship, your job, as you went through, whether, you know, it's, it's figuring out like, what do I need? What do I need? And what do I want? I think it's so interesting that you had this moment of burnout in your dream job, recognizing that like starting it might be a really good fit for you, but the day-to-day of like the, the tweaking, the refining is not a fit. This is true for me as well. I'm a zero to two maybe a two to 10, I really hate 10 to a hundred, like, you know, and so, so figuring out all of these pieces, where do I fit? What makes me happy? How do I like to show up? Who do I need to surround myself with? And how do I need to construct my day, my week, my month so that I'm not just giving, I'm also receiving energy, ideas, community, all of those things. So it was a big, long winded answer to your question of, of how and when, but I think sabbaticals, I, I, I included in the book for a reason, being able to find that space is so crucial to pull up a level and really take that, that bigger picture. So my question to you, and then we can come back to your questions to me, uh, how does one make space for a sabbatical? Like it sounds so ideal and delightful. I don't think anyone would say no to a sabbatical, but how do you actually make space for one without that burnout, you know, crash and and like walk away from your life kind of moment? Yeah. And I mean, two things on that. Number one, um, obviously being able to make space is a huge privilege, both being able to financially afford it, you know, having the, the kind of safety nets and securities and even psychological like excitement around taking something that that appears to be a risk. Um, and so that's what we're working on with the sabbatical project. But the second is most people don't plan it. It just happens to them. So hmm. in our research, you know, over two thirds of folks who take a sabbatical end up getting kind of like pulled out of their everyday life by a personal health crisis, a crisis of someone close to them, a relationship crisis, job crisis, right? Getting fired or, or something, something happening. And so I would say if you don't make time for it, it will probably happen to you, whether you whether you want to or not. And that's like that's what we want to avoid because uh, you know that it means you have to spend a lot more time healing yourself, getting yourself to a, like a level playing field before you can start building. Um, and it's just not ideal, right? I mean, if you're saving up for something for seven years or ten years, it's a lot easier to afford than if you have to pull the parachute and and uh, you know throw your life away and start over. So um, for many reasons, I would say like thinking about it, planning for it um, years in the future um, is the way to to do it. And that's why, you know, you're still my project on, okay, Christina, <laughs> like, I know you can't take it now, but what are you doing, you know, in January of 2028 or something like that? 2027. So we'll, that's what's, I, I've put it on the calendar for my husband. We'll see. <laughs> all right. 2027. See that? I like, mean, that's how you make it possible. Because like for me and and for like many of my friends, you know, Abby Fallick, our, our mutual friend right now, who's doing this with her family, I want to do it with my family. Like, I don't want to just yeah. step out of my life for three months. I want to take my entire family and, and step out of our life together for three yeah. or six or nine months. So part of this certainly is the planning for sure. 
I guess the other pieces, and and you touched on this a little bit, the psychological piece, how do you explain it to the people around you? I mean, it's easier for me, like my employer doesn't care. Um, uh, This is what academics do all the time. They take sabbaticals. But Mm -hmm. if you have a much more of a traditional path, how do you make sense of this without it being, I had a total mental health crisis and had to step (laughs) away for a while? Yeah, I mean, the the good thing is, you know, LinkedIn launched a career breaks feature last year. And so if you just search for sabbatical, there's over 200,000 people on sabbatical at any given time. There's millions of people that have used the career break feature. So whether it's mm-hmm. you know, taking time away um, to be a parent or, or whatever it is. And so uh, the good news is it's never been more acceptable than it is now. The bad news is I think for companies that don't have a sabbatical policy, it requires some kind of courage and putting yourself out there to say mm-hmm. to a supervisor or, or, you know, maybe a colleague and kind of feeling it out. Like, do you know anyone that's taken extended leave? Because what we found is that the super majority of, com- of companies have had something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just usually happens as like a special case, right? Someone mm-hmm. says like, Hey, listen, I've been here for a while. I've, I've earned my keep, you know, my value, and this is important to me. So I want to do it. And they're able to negotiate that. But there's a big step from that into uh, a company making it a policy for everybody, mostly because I think companies are afraid. If they let mm-hmm. people go, um, are they going to pick their head up and want to do something different? Or mm-hmm. are they going to use that as uh, fodder to try to stay, to say like, oh, this company actually respects my my mm-hmm. you know bigger kind of Venn diagram versus yeah. just you know what I bring to work. So um, That's fascinating that it's the fear of losing them rather than thinking about like, how will this actually help them be, you know, more excited, more creative, more sort of ready to give us, roll up their sleeves and, and give us everything. It's it's interesting to me because I, there's research I point to in my book on, on how people having, whether it's side hustles or significant hobbies or just other things that fill them up outside of their job, not only makes them better at their job, it makes them happier at their job. And this is particularly true if they have really crappy jobs. <laughs> like, you know, not, not every job is your life's passion. Like there are many jobs that are good enough jobs. And there's, you know, there's great value in those too. I saw there's a book coming out in literally a couple months called The Good Enough Job. I can't wait to read it. And so I think many employers have this fear that like these jobs kind of suck. And if we let people take any space away, no one's going to come back. And what I would, I would put, you know, this study com- to combine with your research to show that like actually being able to take some space away, having other things that you love outside of your work might make you more inclined to do that. I don't know, insurance adjustment claim something or other desk yeah. job. Um, no, totally. I mean, one of my favorite stories from our interviews was um, it a, not exactly an insurance claims adjuster, but uh, someone who worked at the U.S. Treasury, <laughs> and you know she got into it because she loved international development and impact, um, but she just never got a chance to do some of the big kind of outdoors adventures that she that she liked. And so she got to the point where kind of she had a breaking point and and wanted to take time off. They gave her unpaid leave, and you know she had an amazing time trekking around Patagonia, and came back saying, you know what, like I don't really need to trek that much more. Um, but I really appreciate, and but I missed the intellectual kind of rigor of being mm. in this job. And so as long as the job lets me do this, you know, every five to seven years, I don't have to choose. And, yeah. and it felt like 
you know, a lot of these managers and, and company leaders are operating from like a scarcity mindset. And I know that like short-termism is, is a real thing, but in order to like invest in someone for the medium term, you have to give them something outside yeah. of just the confines of work. So, well, and it's particularly interesting when you think about like the standard, at least the sabbatical policies that I've seen, and I don't study this. I've only seen these anecdotally, but so many of them only really apply once you've been in a job five or seven or 10 years in some cases. And when you look at the average tenure for millennials, <laughs> I know we are, we are turning 40 now, so this might creep up over time, but right now it's under three years in a job and Gen Z is even less. It's under two years for Gen Z. And so even the companies that have sabbatical policies for the majority of our generation and the ones that below us, they don't qualify for these, at least in our current pattern of job hopping. And, and in, there are lots of reasons that lead to that. Most notably, it's hard to get a raise, a significant raise without changing jobs. That's um, sort of the most powerful way to, to increase your earnings. So how, how might companies think about using this idea of like, we'll give you this space to pursue the other things you want, including potentially, you know, just a break as a way to maybe attract folks to stick around longer. It's sort of the opposite yeah. of what our parents were preaching with like stick with one career for 40 years. And, you know, the standard plan right now for us is stick with it for three years and then change companies. Yeah, no, I think the the um, hesitancy to roll things out like this is definitely operating in this old operating system of the assumption that people stay for decades, right? Which just isn't true. And so I think it's totally ignoring, as you're you're kind of intimating, it's ignoring the the positive sides of like stretch roles and positions for junior employees while you're gone, and mm -hmm. like you know, putting an organ like helping kind of alleviate um, alleviate key personnel risk, right? Like what happens when a leader leaves? It's yeah. something you have to plan for and get good at because no one's staying forever. Like how do you transition responsibilities, you know, off and back on again when folks take parental leave, which luckily is becoming more and more common. So yeah, but I, I refuse to have this conversation be more about sabbaticals, even though I appreciate it. <laughs> even though I, we have, we have so much interesting stuff to cover uh, with your book. So um, okay. So like back to you on this, like how do people actually do this? Like, where do you start by to, to like design and, and, uh, implement a portfolio life? Yeah, it starts, it starts with you. It starts with how you see yourself. And, um, as I say, what's in your Venn diagram, um, you know, I introduced myself as a human Venn diagram. It's a, it started as a joke and it kind of stuck <laughs> because it's a way that allows me to have an identity that is separate from my current job. And in particular for me, it emphasizes that I have always seen myself as someone who is interdisciplinary and it's at those intersections for me, it's business technology, the arts, and, you know, lots of different functions within those worlds, but it's those intersections where I add value and where I come alive and where I bring my network and my skills and, and everything to the table. And so it really starts from understanding your identity, who you are and what you bring beyond your current job or how you have most recently you know, monetized your time. And that starts with, um, in some ways, excavating maybe things about you that you um, you put away in uh, over the course of however many years in, in order to look serious. The hobbies, mm -hmm. curiosities, 
the kind of crazy interests that don't seem connected at all to your profession to bring those back out. And even if you don't understand why or how they fit together to just have that visibility, map them out in your Venn diagram. And then step two is sort of don't just do this internally, go get some external feedback as well. Go talk to the people who know you and love you and have worked with you in various settings over the years and ask them to reflect back to you what they see. Because in those moments, I offer three questions in the book. Um, When have you seen me happiest? Hmm. What do you come to me for? Like, what is that moment where you have that spark? Be like, I should see what DJ thinks about this. And where do I stand out against my peers? Because in those conversations, you might start to recognize that you have a superpower that you had no idea that this was hard for anyone else because it's easy for you. It, It doesn't even occur to you as something that is unique and a huge value add, as well as, you know, conversations around like, when are you at your best? Mm-hmm. recognizing maybe that you're someone who starts things, not runs them in perpetuity. That's a really important thing to know. And so having that both internal uh, reflection and external data ha- helps you start from a place of understanding who you are. You have to start there because all of the opportunities that you might have beyond uh, what you're doing right now, you won't even see those options if you only see yourself as like, well, I'm not that, I'm this. And you're like, well, that's the story you've been telling yourself for however mm-hmm. many years, but you might in fact be more than that. So you start with your Venn diagram. Then there's a, a sort of a pair of exercises that match up what are your needs and what are your wants, or I call them your wishes. The needs are in some ways reflective of what season of life are you in. So this could be everything from how much money do you need to make to, you know, for me, I need an office with a door that closes. That's what gives you my best work. (laughs) I cannot work in an open plan office and I never will ever again. (laughs) Um, So what do you need? And then the other side, you know, I also, for example, for this season of life, I need a ton of flexibility. You saw I'm home with my toddler today. She's sick. I needed a job where I could make that call in the morning and no one is going to put up a fuss. So what do you need? And then the other side, what do you want? It, it starts with what are the wishes for your life? Mm-hmm. And, and this can be everything from, you know, what do you want right now to what are the big, hairy, audacious goals? What are the things that you you want to have experienced before you die, the the people you want to have loved, the impact that you want to leave behind. What is that imprint that you will leave when you pass? Having that kind of tangible awareness of what do I want my life to be? Mm. And you map those three things together. Who are you? What do you need? What do you want? And you start putting the pieces together. It's a little bit art and a little bit science. And it really comes with, how do I meet those needs? Maybe this is a good enough day job that gives Mm -hmm. me my my income, my health insurance. Uh, It gives me a reason to get out of bed every day and put on clothes. (laughs) It it gives me colleagues and creativity and a community. But it's not everything. It's not all of the things I need. And so I also have a moonlighting project. Maybe it's something I monetize. It's a, a side hustle. Maybe it's just a really serious hobby that gives me 
I don't know, the artistic expression that I don't get in my day job. I get the chance to play with a band or make pottery or learn to code, whatever that thing is. And then what else do you have? How are you taking care of your health? Do you have space for your family and your friends? Do you have free time? Your mm. comment on like, either you find the sabbatical or the sabbatical finds you. It's so true. Because um, I point to research in the book around uh, sort of the ideal utilization of a manufacturing line, which stay with me for a second. In a, a world-class manufacturing line where they've worked out all the kinks, it's fully automated, it has all the things working for it. They only run it at 85% capacity. Not a hundred, not a hundred and ten percent, as we all tell everyone, give it a hundred and ten percent. Eighty-five percent, because they know that planned downtime is cheaper than unplanned downtime. <laughs> Either you find the time to, you know, take a rest, or the rest will force itself upon you. And yeah. so leaving space in that portfolio for maintenance for do-overs, for serendipity, for just daydreaming, right? Whatever that is, um, that is crucial for the sustainability of your portfolio. Otherwise, you will run to the point of burnout. And then, you know, the last piece is really just how do you communicate your portfolio to the people around you? Um, this is harder than a linear life. And that is true whether you're trying to communicate with your life partner, with your family, just co the coordination <laughs> of, of logistics gets more challenging. But it also becomes relevant as you think about the story you put out in the world, the story you have on LinkedIn or on your website, the story you share with your professional network of who you are, what you're building, how they can help you, it, it takes more intentional work. Um, you can't assume other people will make sense of the pieces you've put together and, and see how they can be helpful. You have to do in that work. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just quickly, I mean, that, that sounds like a lot of work, especially, you know, digging deep into like what legacy you want to leave and what you want to be known <laughs> for. Do you suggest folks kind of bite it off in one chunk over a long weekend or set up time to do it over months? How How is the best way to, to go about that? I mean, again, it depends. Part of it depends on what do you have space for. I recognize that like if you have other people and things and jobs and whatever else, like a long weekend might not be an option. You might have to do this in three hour workshops, you know, once a weekend for several weeks in a row. It also depends on how happy you are slash how miserable you are right now, right? How urgent does it feel to make a major change versus a few tweaks? Um, if this is not incredibly urgent, if it's like, eh, I'm pretty happy, I just, I want to check in to make sure I'm not going to run up against the wall or burn out, that might be something you do in smaller pieces. But the whole middle section of the book, it's three chapters, and it's all just hands-on exercises to guide you through this process. 
So my recommendation would be read the whole thing first and then decide, is this something where I go on a solo trip by myself to work through? Is this something I grab a friend and we do this as sort of like accountability partners and, mm. uh, or, you know, a, a small professional cohort. Maybe I have a, a group of, of people that I am close to that I can do with them. So um, really it, it, it depends on how this fits in your life, but it does take space, mental, obviously time. It takes the space to pull up a level. And that that can be hard. I fully get that. So a lot of what you're talking about is about kind of looking at you where you are now and saying, am I happy taking your temperature? Obviously, we want to talk about like future proofing the career when there's been a few questions about future. And Mm so can you talk about how doing this helps you in the future, both for for your career and, and in your life? And we had questions specifically around kind of the environment and kind of climate change in the future, AI in the future. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, incorporating the changes that we already see, and I'm sure that many that we can't see already in, in your future career and life. There are two ways that this helps you future proof. And I I don't want to um, minimize how important it is to, to keep an eye on sort of how do you build resilience into your portfolio? But that is the point of this, right? You look at your financial portfolio, you design it for diversification and resilience to meet certain kind of risk and reward goals at Mm -hmm. whatever, you know, asset allocation you're at. This is true for your career as well. The argument that my mom always made for the path that she chose, you pick a career and you, you go all in for 40 years was it was less risky than being an entrepreneur, than doing something zigzaggy, it's less risky. And my argument back to her now is no, it's not. There's risk everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's the only question is whether or not you see it. So a big part of future-proofing your career is recognizing the rate of change in every industry, in every function, in every country is not only faster than our you know, previous generations ever saw, but it is speeding up. Mm. The, the acceleration of that is only increasing where you might have not just two or three careers in a lifetime. There might be industries for your second or your third career that literally didn't exist when you were in school. So you cannot plan linearly for that. And it's recognizing that whatever you're doing today probably won't exist in the version that it is today in five years, certainly with AI <laughs> coming, like generative AI is, is mind-blowingly uh, disruptive, particularly in white-collar jobs that haven't seen the same level of disruption that many of the other industries have in the last couple of decades. The next five years are going to be nuts, for lack of a better word. And so <laughs> having a diversified strategy of not just income streams, but how you see yourself, having that flexibility to say, you know what, I've done this for 20 years, but I'm so much more than that. I could pivot here. I could go in that direction. That doesn't change who I am or challenge my identity. Uh, That's part of who I am. It's consistent. And having the pieces in place, the network, the relationships, the curiosity, the the groundwork laid to support that pivot rather than sort of smacking up against a wall and saying, well, crap, 
journalism is no longer a sustainable career path for basically anyone. So I guess I need a new a new career, right? In that moment of crisis, that's not the moment to suddenly say, well, what else might I want to do? Um, mm. It's before those moments of crisis where you want to be thoughtful about what else might be in that world and um, that that would bring you joy, that would meet your needs, that would help you drive toward what you want in your life. So I guess the the argument I'm making here, the only way to future-proof is through diversification. Mm. And the way to diversify has to start with an acknowledgement of identity and optionality that are so much greater than what you are today. Okay. This sounds great for, for people, but what's the pitch for companies? So they're, they're <laughs> kind of giving folks flexibility, giving them time, telling them to invest in things outside of their job. Why does this help them? Yeah. So for many of the same reasons that you've made this argument on sabbaticals, having a workforce that is uh, excited to try many different things, to grow in diagonal ways, to be flexible about how they see their career trajectory, gives companies flexibility if and when entire jobs have to be rewritten. When you have to reallocate talent because you used to have a whole department that did this thing and now generative AI can do it in seconds. So either you lay all of those people off or you already have had the pieces in place to say, well, we, you, we gave you a stretch assignment a year ago working on this new thing. Would you want to pivot into that new world? Do you want to try that function or this team? Um, and having that awareness, not just that your team is willing to, but having already given them that chance to stretch in different ways. So I, I've been consulting with a couple of, uh, of big firms right now, trying to figure out how do we keep our employees engaged in a moment where what we, under belt tightening, we can't get promotions as fast as we used to. We can't give those raises or those other opportunities like we were two years ago. And one of the big challenges I'm giving them is how can you give your employees these stretch opportunities, these growth opportunities diagonally within your mm -hmm. company? How can mm -hmm. you understand what else interests them or what other things are exciting that you could say, okay, we're going to give you a secondment over to this other team. It's not a raise, it's not perfect, but it gives them a chance to say, I'm going to make sure that we are investing in your growth. And there's a future here for you, no matter which way you want to take this. Is is there a meta recommendation for companies to then kind of think about things from a portfolio basis? I mean, this started from, I before I brought a portfolio to my personal life, I was building portfolios on an innovation level for companies, right? This is before I joined the faculty here. That's what I was doing for four years. And it comes from this mindset of like, I don't know where the future is going. I don't know which bet is going to win. And so you place a lot of bets. <laughs> and just like venture capital does, you place a lot of bets within a thesis and nine of them can fail and one pans out and you're covered. The diversification covers you. And so I think from the same point of view, if you're thinking about this from a talent strategy, if you are able and willing to let your, your talent place a lot of bets on themselves of where and how they fit in your company, in your industry, in this space, then when everything changes, you have the flexibility to reconfigure and place new bets rather than the slash and burn. Let's lay everyone off because we don't know how to adjust mm. to this new normal. 
do you have other people or companies that you you have off the top of your your head that you feel like have done a, a good job at this like folks you admire whose career career paths uh you would say have done have done a good job or individuals companies? or companies yeah either choose your own adventure there's a couple of companies and well full disclosure I worked with them and this is part of why I know under the hood uh, of what how that's working but I think General Mills and Procter and Gamble both on the CPG side have been really innovative in how they have been, you know, putting together new people strategies to allow this sort of career experimentation within the company. Samsung, I know from a distance, I haven't worked with them, but I have seen some of their uh, kind of innovation and creativity pipeline uh, around talent that has really offered room to grow uh, within mm. the org rather than having to to leave. But I, I will say for the most part, there's lots of room for innovation <laughs> and, and it's going to be forced upon them if they don't, right? I think um, I was talking with one major consulting firm that is really challenged by uh, this moment because their model, all professional services model is this upper out you know, pyramid. Mm -hmm. You either get promoted to partner or you leave. And they have in the past few years had this cycle of talent come in, start the job. They've invested a ton in training them. They get their mm -hmm. first or second promotion to manager or, you know, project leader or partner or junior partner. And then they say, that's good enough. I don't mm -hmm. want to go further. I don't want to be a senior partner traveling the world, working, whatever. Like this is enough for me. And that breaks their whole model. They're like, do we have to fire people who are good at their job and are happy because yeah. we need that space for someone else? Or do we have to rethink our entire workforce? And they don't have an answer yet, but it's going to be forced upon them by an entire generation of folks that say maybe good enough is enough. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think just more broadly about this conversation. Obviously, I mentioned the great resignation. I think there's been a lot of kind of ideas being thrown around uh, about this like search for happiness or sustainability or whatnot. Like, why do you think this is coming to a head right now? Is it, is it like a temporary reaction? Is it the new normal? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know what is temporary and what is long-term for a while. I thought several things would stick around for a long time. Like, I don't know, curbside grocery delivery, but that seems to be <laughs> going away. I, I am hopeful that this is the new normal. Um, I certainly have felt both personally and have seen in my research the the un, unfortunate opportunity to sit still for a very long time that the early you know months and, and year or so of the pandemic offered a lot of people gave them this space, much like sabbaticals do, right? This weird taking you out of your day-to-day -day, uh, rituals, that weird space to sit and say, is this the life I wanted to be living? And out of that moment of reflection, I think a large swath of folks said, no, this isn't it. And mm. then the question is, well, what is? And I think there's a huge reaction in the last two years of people really rethinking. I mean, you see this in the data that millennials, college-educated, uh, white-collar folks are leaving coastal cities and moving inland in the U.S. I cannot emphasize how big of a deal that is here. Like for, you know, 20 years, that's what you did. You graduated from college, you moved to a coastal city, and you got a big, big ambitious job. Mm -hmm. And there's a real uh, movement to say, like, if that's not 
if this cult of ambition is not it, what would a more sustainable life look like? Does that mean moving to a different town, having space, having a lower paying job, but a lower cost of living and the opportunity to kind of live in other dimensions that I haven't given myself that permission to do? I think that time will tell if this is a moment or uh, a movement to quote Hamilton, but I'm hopeful that that this will be sustainable. So kind of marrying what we're both talking about here and, and answering a question from Ali or, or Ali, they said they're about to retire and looking to travel. When you think about your 2027 plans, mm-hmm. 2026, do you have advice for folks on like the, the type of thing you should do while you're rebalancing this portfolio? Or do you have your kind of perspective on what you need in order to rebalance? I mean, for me, I need I need a full abrupt step away from the day-to-day, like truly. It's hard for me to take a little bit of space and really protect it and have the mindset shift. So what I want with my family, like I want to pack up and go travel the world for six months. And I want to take them to places that that you know we we might never get to go back to and and do so in a way that allows them to learn by living. And I I I will admit I was informed by I met a family doing this exact thing um, when I was in business school. I went backpacking through East Africa and climbed Kilimanjaro. And and on Christmas Eve I was in Tanzania and ran into this family that had these two little kids and they're like. Eh. They're big enough to carry their suitcases, but they're young enough that they don't, you know, talk back yet. <laughs> and, um, and this was our chance to create these memories in a way that will last a lifetime for them. And that will give, uh, in this case, the, the mom, she's like, it'll give me and my husband the chance to think about what we want to do next individually and together for our lives. And so I don't know. I think that's, that's the vision. We'll see if we can pull it off. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Um, would love to give some time for questions from the audience. One, one person asked that he says he thinks in the eighties, uh, Charles Handy said the typical career was over and people need a portfolio. So how does this differ? Uh, this is built on Charles Handy's work. I quote him uh, and reference him extensively. In 1989, he pu- published his book, The Age of Unreason, about this exact idea. He called it a portfolio life, but what he described was literally a portfolio career. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where I started with a lot of these ideas. And I think the only uh, significant difference here is that I'm expanding it to put your career in the context of all the other pieces of your life. Um, but I think it's it's entirely consistent with Charles Handy's work. Awesome. Awesome. Another question. We talked about kind of future proofing with respect to new technologies. Um, can you just mention something about, about climate change? Like how, how would this help in a world with increasing kind of volatility and uncertainty on that dimension? Yeah, it's all of the, it's yes. And all of these things contribute, right? So AI is certainly the technological impact, but uh, ecological, geopolitical, um, there are so many uh, outside forces that can and will completely change the shape of cities, countries, industries, sort of the the futurists think about what is plausible, what is possible, and what is probable. And so we start with what is probable because that is the extension of you know, like you think you think the future is going to look roughly like it does today, right? That's the yeah. like, what do we think is, is going to happen? Well, that's assuming 
all all the things stay in place that um, your bank doesn't uh, have a run on it and freeze up your assets, um, that your house is still standing in an, a town that is still livable, that the water and the electricity still work, um, right? There are all these things that we assume about our day-to-day existence because we have to. We cannot go out every day questioning every single thing, but but a future that is based on a ton of assumptions that the future roughly looks like today is quite frankly, a little bit uh, risky. And so <laughs> these questions of not just what is probable, but what is possible, um, what is plausible, these things help you kind of model out, well, what would happen if, if my town is no longer habitable? If the summers suddenly are you know, scorchingly hot and the winters have, you know, crazy, unsustainable kind of weather patterns. What does it look like if, you know, we have to, um, our entire industry changes because of uh, changes in in consumption patterns, right? Mm. All of these things are relevant in a world that is facing some really existential threats. So as you're future-proofing, it's not just a matter of like, how will technology upend my job? But it's how could each of these pieces that I've built a life on, how might they be at risk? Mm -hmm. And if they were to change, if they were no longer accessible to me, or if I no longer want them, do I have diversification that would allow me to make a pivot without it being this moment of extreme crisis? Yeah. No, I love that. Okay. So what should people be reading in addition to what you're talking about here? Do you have book recs that, that you um, either kind of make the discussion more comprehensive or give people other kind of concrete plans? Like what else are you reading? What are you excited about? Yeah. Um, there's a book uh, that came out a couple of years ago called The Flux Mindset, April Rin really fantastic. She's a futurist and a strategist, really fantastic uh, sort of academic overview of many of these uh, exact things. That's sort of the mindset shifts behind how do we live in a world that is facing constant change. Um, And I just think she's got some really interesting prompts and, uh, and exercises to help you reframe the mindsets that you might need to be more flexible. Um, I also really love uh, Maura Aaron's Mele's book just came out called The Anxious Achiever. Uh, for those of us who um, identify as that, uh, I think it's it's a really compelling handbook for how to kind of make sense of some of that anxiety and, and put it to work, how to make it a bit of a superpower. And even if it's not something that you personally struggle with, I can almost guarantee there's someone close to you or someone you manage who mm. works in that way. And I think it, it's just a really helpful way um, to think about working differently. So um, you've been and on- then, you know, your book when you finally write it, <laughs> no pressure, no pressure, no, no need to make me more anxious. Now you've been on book tour with this book launch. And so mm-hmm. what are some things that you've learned that have, that have surprised you? Um, you've gotten any interesting questions or reactions to it that, that you weren't expecting? I mean, it's not necessarily surprising, but really reassuring. You know, when I I wrote this book, my editor um, really pushed me to focus on a specific audience. You know, I'm, every editor does this. You can't write a book for everyone. So like pick an audience that you you think is kind of your target and write for them. 
And I, I focused on, on us, right, on, on millennials and sort of older Gen Z folks that are growing up in a world where the economic equation that our parents have handed to us doesn't work anymore. All of the pieces are harder to achieve and combined, it's almost impossible. And so I wanted to focus on on us to give a bit of an understanding of like, it's not your fault <laughs> that you can't mm. make these things work. We're in a different world. Here's how to play differently. But I think what's been really reassuring, maybe a bit surprising, is just how many folks from every other generation connects to mm. these ideas too. Gen mm. X, boomers, people who are thinking about retiring, everyone kind of at these moments of transition have recognized, because this is not about a generation, this is about a moment right now where things that used to hold true aren't. Mm. And so it's a, it's a different way of thinking about career and life for everyone. Um, it just is becoming the new normal and the sort of the default for us because the old model was never an option for millennials. Totally. Um, okay, two two last questions, um, and then we'll answer any other Q and A's that come in. But what do you think the biggest mistake is that folks encounter when trying to implement this, or what would you kind of encourage folks to watch out for? Yeah, the first one is um, it can feel overwhelming to completely do an audit of your life, decide what makes you happy talk to everyone about who you are or should be and like change everything you're doing all at once, right? Like I, I recognize this, this is a lot. So if you are an all or nothing kind of black or white kind of person, you might be, you know, jump right in, try to do it all, be overwhelmed by it and throw it over your shoulder and say, I, I can't, it's too much. Um, and so I really encourage you to sort of do this in pieces do it in stages. Even if you do the exercises all at once, think about change in stages. What is a mm -hmm. small tweak that you might make to your portfolio? Carving out time for joining a community group or making space for that small business you wanted to start on the side. What are the small things you can do? And then the medium things, and then they build into some of the bigger things. So, so really think about um, staging this. And then the second one is about how do you communicate this to the people around you, whether this is your manager, your partner, your children, the other people that depend on you, any major changes in your life are probably going to freak them out. So how can you be proactive in communicating? This is not a midlife crisis. This is not you throwing everything away to start over. This is just looking for space and sustainability to build a career that helps you thrive in the midst of uncertainty and gives you joy beyond just your work. Cool. That's a great place to stop. I guess the final question is where can folks get a copy? How can they find you? Um, you can find it on sort of all major retailers. You've got the American version. Here's the UK version. Um, and yeah, I know with a donut. Um Waterstones, Amazon, your favorite retailer, and uh, whatever you do, I hope you have a chance to pick up a copy, share it with a friend. Um, and if you're so inclined, leave a review somewhere online. Those really help. Ooh, that's a good reminder. Cool. All right, Christina, super awesome to get to talk to you about this. Thanks for sharing the message with folks and wishing you all the continued success. Thank you so much, DJ. 
This episode starred Christina Wallace and the presenter was DJ Tadonna. The producer was Luke Naylor Perrett and our editor is John Doughty. I make this show with Esme Bright and we have help from Nicole Wong. For lots, lots, lots more episodes and generous discounts to all of our live events, become a member of How To Plus. Members receive free access to every live stream and a members exclusive podcast that includes almost everything in our programme, not just the podcasts we put out on this feed. Use the discount code POD50 for a permanent half price discount. You can find out more on our website. Till next time, I'm Vash Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>